The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, welcome to another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. I love how excited you are to say that. Low these 200, whatever, 300 episodes in. You know what? I think that we do got to be excited about this. Otherwise, why are we doing it? True. It's just for the money. That's all I'm doing it for is the money. It's the money. It's the big money. <laughs> so, Ilya, who is on the show today? On the show today is Jessica Lee Gagne. And you know what? We've mentioned her before because I'm a big fan of Severance and uh, she shoots Severance. And uh, lo and behold, in our interview today, we talk a lot about Severance. And actually, I got to say, I've got a pretty critical eye for things. And I thought I was kind of guessing the the technical ways in which she was going about it. But no, I was wrong. I, I was it was actually very Whoa. educational for me. And, uh, you know, it happens occasionally. Of course, I, I'm wrong. And I, I was wrong. love it when we're when we're talking to somebody <laughs> and we have like a really strong idea about how they did X, Y or Z. And they're like. No, actually, it was this completely other thing. And and my mind is blown every time. It's what I want. I want the big epiphanies and the mind blown from from uh, these amazing people. Well, uh, I'm going to still recommend if you have access to Apple TV or you're thinking about trying one of those like uh, free week trials and stuff. Watch Severance. The latest episode just came out this past Friday and it's wonderful. And it's interesting because uh, I find it actually I hear it's polarizing. I heard a couple of people who didn't like it now. And I kind of feel like, are we watching the same show? I, I love it. I think that it, it's fantastic. And it's a really great conversation with Jessica. And I, I can't wait to get to it in just a few minutes. But Ben, what's going on in the world right now that we need to talk about for our close focus? Well, before I get to the close focus, I actually wanted to plug somebody who's been on the show before, and that is Bill Totolo, who I was able to work with this week. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. uh, cinematography podcast guest Bill Totolo and also co-host, yeah, filled in when you were out. You worked Filled in when I, when I had the COVID. Yeah. Today, uh, this past week, I got to work with Bill on a small project and uh, it was really exciting to work with him. And I just wanted to say, I, I don't know how I would have met Bill had it not been through this podcast. Well, awesome. I'm glad it worked out well. Uh, hey, tell me, did you use any seamless paper on that? <laughs> we, we did. We bought it from a place called Hot Rod Camera. We, we, uh, uh, we used 205-inch pieces of seamless background. Big big fan of the seamless. It, it's uh, funny. We don't do a lot of seamless, but I, I'm so glad we could help you with that. So. I love the look of seamless, and people are uh, sometimes clients, sometimes DPs who I strong arm into doing this are like, why don't we just do green screen? You can put in whatever you want back there. And I just love like the look of seamless. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, there's something about getting it right, getting it in camera, of course, every time. All right, so Ben, now that you've plugged Bill, now that we've talked about, you know, how you got some great paper, uh, let's <laughs> close focus. What What's going on? I mean, the, the Oscars happened. Should we, should we yeah. talk about, you know, the little thing called the Oscars? Well, and as we're recording, it was a week ago that the Oscars happened. And uh, before we get to the thing that everyone talks about, I, I just feel like we have to congratulate Greg Fraser, who's been on the show twice for winning for Dune. I was wrong. I thought Power of the Dog was probably going to get it. But uh, nobody is surprised or disappointed that Greg Fraser, whose work is just freaking amazing on Dune, that, that he won. I think we should take the credit. He came on the show. Boom. He gets the Oscar. That, I think I think there's a direct direct correlation here. Except, except there were two other 
<laughs> TP. <laughs> Daniel Daniel Lapson might have something to say about that. Oh, you're right. Okay, so sorry. There's a flaw with my logic. And Ari Wegner. Ari Wegner. Yeah, Ari Wegner, who I thought had a lock, but uh, you know, Ari Wegner will will come back and she'll win again. I seem to recall I, I had picked Greg Frazier during our Oscar, you know, and, nomination episode. And literally nobody can say Dune isn't amazing. And I, I think I said it on our Oscar special and I'll say it again. I feel like if the Batman had come out in 2021, he would have been up against himself because those are mm. two just completely different looking, but just striking gorgeous films. So also something else happened at the Oscars. It, it didn't make much of a stir. Hardly anyone even noticed. But it turns out that Will Smith got out of his seat and physically assaulted Chris Rock. I, I'm going to he slapped him. He slapped him across the face and it became this whole thing. Will Smith now has since apologized and resigned from the Academy. Although I did think it was interesting that he resigned on April 1st, which I kind of thought like he might be like, yeah, nah, I was April Fool's. I didn't really resign, but no, he, he resigned. So Yeah, I think he resigned uh, before they had a chance to kick him out. Look, all I can say is, I and I think I have a, a very unique take on this, which is I cannot support anyone with the last name Rock being slapped in public. <laughs> You know, he was so great in Fargo. He was so great. And uh, I think, as I recall, he did some slapping in that show. So uh, I, I got to say that it has taken up a lot of oxygen. Oh, my God. L- so much stuff. The so most much oxygen stuff. that anything from the Oscars has taken up. I mean, you kind of have to ask the cost benefit analysis of it to a degree, which is to say, did it did it make us all talk about the Oscars nonstop for about a week or so now? But also, are we talking about the wrong thing? And, and you know what? I got to say that it's still the ratings were down. It wasn't like the best ratings episode. And they did this weird pre-recorded sort of segment thing for several of the awards, which, of course, people uh, resigned from the Academy in protest over this. And there was other, there was other people who had you know yeah. strong words about this and said, well, they weren't going to be bothered to be there if they weren't going to actually be live. And I got to say that there is so much waste and filler in that show and so much stuff that is, that is based around actors that to give these other categories of the academy the academy has got you know thousands of members that make up these these other technical uh, areas that really don't get their due except during the awards and people don't even necessarily stop to think about them to take that away but then to do so much sort of inconsequential moments and dragged out oh, yeah, moments wow. of the of the thing it's too bad it's too bad that that it's come to this and i really hope that the academy decides to put that back in because you know lord knows i got to say it it definitely lost some spontaneity to have the pre-recorded acceptances and uh, not actually have them introduced by, uh, you know, uh, celebrities and people who are really interested and respectful and love the fact that all of these crafts are part of the, the guild. So I, I'm going to say something a little controversial when it comes to that stuff. I, I do think that they should put all that stuff back into the ceremony. But that being said, and the Chris Rock slap and the subsequent Will Smith super weird acceptance speech notwithstanding oh yeah oh yeah so weird (laughs) weirdest five minutes of television in my entire life but like those two things notwithstanding i thought the oscars were pretty well run i thought they were interesting the opening number with beyonce was pretty great i thought wanda sykes amy schumer and regina hall did a great job hosting uh and they were cheaper than one man (laughs) oh is that true (laughs) oh my god that's awful (laughs) 
That was that was the joke. That was the first thing. It's like uh, Amy Schumer came out. And she says, "And why are there three of us? Because we were cheaper than getting oh, one." You're man. right. You're right. I, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> Honestly, like so much of my mind has been like uh, over overtaken by the the weird ass slap. And I also have to say, by the way, uh, to his credit, Questlove won an Oscar, and I gotta say that so many people seem to have like forgotten that happened. That was pretty. You know awesome. what? I hadn't seen Summer of Soul until it won, and because it was during the best documentary announcement that Chris Rock got slapped by Will Smith that I feel like it overshadowed Questlove's thing. I I went ahead and watched Summer of Soul the next night and that is a phenomenal documentary. It's so it is good. So, so good. So goddamn great. It's uh, fun. It's it's really fun. I also have to say and I know a lot of people said this, man, Chris Rock like didn't really miss a beat. Like if I got slapped in public, I would just be like a blubbering pile of idiocy more so than usual and Holy crap! I could not believe that uh, that he, he just kept, he kept on it going. together. Yeah. Oh, and not only that, he actually got a real boost because he's on tour. He's on a comedy tour right now, and he was supposed to be in Boston two nights later. And the tickets for Chris Rock were forty nine fifty. That was the list price to go see him. After he got slapped. The list price jumped up to $232, and the people who were able to buy it at $232 sure felt lucky because there were scalped tickets going for as much as $8,000 for that $49.50 show two days later. I love so. I love a good comedy act, but uh, yeah, I'm not paying $8,000 to see anybody tell jokes. Uh, you know, I, I think that I think it's always funny, like, you know, stuff that that happens like that. Who's to say that those tickets ever even got sold in the first place? I mean, or ever, anyone ever bought them. But yes, there was someone who was trying to scalp them for eight grand. There were, there were several, they said, between three and eight grand. But eight grand was the highest. And Chris Rock you know, showed up to a completely full house, sold out show. And he did address it a little bit. But supposedly he basically said, uh, my whole routine was written before uh, <laughs> the Oscars. So before that's what you're going to get tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, in the future, you come back and see, I'm sure I'll have some stuff about it. So, <laughs> well, and, and another thing, and, and maybe this just says more about our culture at large, but like it wasn't a day old before conspiracy theories started coming out. Oh, yeah. It was, pe- it was staged. It yeah, was planned. It was staged. It was, and there was like uh, my favorite one was that uh, somebody showed like a, a face patch, like a padding on, on Chris Rock's face. And it was clearly <laughs> no. photoshopped on there. But it was like, look, he had that. I'm like, you know, there were close up shots of him in that whole intro and there's no padding on his face and people saying it was a PR stunt. And I kept saying, like, who who benefits no, from that? Like, no, no one. Well, I would say Chris Rock's show got some benefit, of it, but that was super unintentional. But how would you and, how would you know that that would be the fallout of that? Of you know? course not. And, and Will Smith has suffered terribly and I think will continue to suffer in public opinion. But what I think is really interesting is there are these two camps. And I'm going to say that camp number one definitely in favor of, uh, of Team Rock and that what he did was inexcusable and it shouldn't have shouldn't have happened that way. But there's about 20 to 25 percent of people I hear who are big Will Smith supporters are like, yep, that's what I would have done. And I, I find that really surprising. But those people are out there and they're being very vocal. You don't have to turn over too many rocks to find a bunch of people praising Will Smith for defending the honor of his of his, of his bride. <laughs> yeah, which, I would have slapped a man in public for making a joke. Yeah, uh, uh, which I did not think was a particularly egregious joke either, considering I mean, like. Even if it was, it's a joke, you know, I mean, like, I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't want to wade into the who was right and who was wrong. I'm going to, I guess, fall hard down on it's always wrong to to hit somebody. 
Just there's... yeah, I think that that's true, and I think that to do that in front of millions of people also uh, really you know damages your image. And I think that there's so many different ways you could have handled that that would have been uh, just as effective without actually having to you know well uh, lay, lay the smack down. And on it's like Chris we're there, we're there uh, you know for Will Smith we're there to honor the movie King Richard, and which he ended up winning a Best Actor award for, and it's like was anyone talking about King Richard the movie after that? No. And it's too bad. It's a really good movie. So it's it's really too bad. I got to say, oh, I was just going to say, I know you said you really liked the Beyonce opening, but, and it might've been my screen that I was watching it on, but did you feel the colors were strange during that? I definitely felt like the color was strange on my TV. I mean, I so. thought it was a look they were going for. I just kind of accepted mm. it. All right. It seemed very sort of low con in the shadows. And that was, I was, wasn't sure that was intentional or not. So. It definitely wasn't live. When when it's on the Oscars, I assume it's intentional. <laughs> like, there's not a lot right. of, outside of the Will Smith thing. Not a whole lot of spontaneous accidents happen on the Oscars. Uh, excuse me, Moonlight, yeah. Best Picture. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That before this, that was my favorite moment of, of in Oscar history because because what's interesting. It's still my favorite moment. Actually, it's, it's interesting it's when you favorite. see something that's like so clearly stage managed and stuffy and borderline tedious when something completely unexpected happens it just becomes very exciting and and oddly relates to my short end which i'll talk about later all right well let's get to the interview with jessica lee gagne here we go the cinematography podcast interview i'm joined now by jessica lee gagne hey thank you so much for being on the cinematography podcast it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're the director of photography for this new Apple TV series, which uh, I have been raving about on our podcast, actually, called Severance. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with the show? Well, I had done another show with Ben Stiller before called Escape at Danamora. So that was the beginning of our collaboration in 2017. I never really expected for that to happen for me, but it was a great collaboration and it went super well. And then after that, we were both excited at the possibility of working together again. And soon after Escape, he talked about Severance. At that point, it wasn't real yet. It was just, oh, there's this script I like. He already knew who he wanted for it. It was very clear in his mind, like where he was going with that. But then when he told me it was an office show, uh, I definitely was a little reluctant. I did not like the idea of doing an office show, at, especially one underground with no windows, which meant I had to do the same lighting setup over and over and over again, just like these characters do things over and over again. So that was a little bit challenging. And then with time, when the project actually became real and I had to actually face the music, I wasn't going to say no to working with him after having had the opportunity to do Escape with him, you know? So I uh, pushed myself to start trying to see what it could be visually on my end. And I found references that kind of opened Pandora's box to like how to actually see this in a completely visual cinematic way. I got all kinds of questions about the visuals, actually. And I think we're just going to dive right in. The show starts off with, I want to say, a Lazy Susan 360 degree shot, which is just like catnip for, I think, for other camera people, because, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a trick shot. I'm sure there was a remote head or something that's involved, but you don't necessarily, I think, start off with sort of like the big guns like that and really kind of draw people in. But the shot works so well. Can you talk about how you guys planned that this is going to be, you know, I, I don't know if it's a, the exact opening shot. I, if I recall correctly, I think there's an overhead looking down on Hallie, who's sprawled out on this table. 
And then we go to this Lazy Susan shot. Can you talk a little bit about how you, you wanted to bring people into this world? Well, you are right. It does start with an overhead shot. And then there's the circular one, which you could almost say that that's like a trademark for Ben now, because in Escape at Danamora, it's the wraparound shot with Tilly in her interview. And that was like a slow reveal going. It's a different shot, but still that eerie concept of things being divulged slowly. So Helly, yeah, she's on the table and then she goes around and she's like discovering this space. He didn't know he, that he wanted to do that shot. Then doing it with the space that we had and the table and the wide angle, because we do a lot of like wide angle stuff in that basement floor. Um, we actually had to split the table open to be able to put the camera there. So that was a table that could be split in two. And we put a remote head and that was it, you know, in the middle. So it could spin around. When you got to the sides, you couldn't see that the table was split open. But we did go through like, it took a while to actually find that simple solution. It's like, oh, do we bring the camera down from above? Do we put it on the table? I know, but she's like on the table. Is that going to be a problem? And then someone, I think it was the grip or the operator, Sam probably said, why don't we just like split the table open? Oh, that's a great idea. Uh, it works really well. And, you know, it's not, <laughs> the, the show seems to be filled with shots like this. I think it might've been the second episode. There's a sort of like hallucinogenic uh, sequence that takes place with John Turturro. And I think it's a Steadicam shot, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And it starts off on him, but then starts to uh, truck right. And then suddenly the computer must not be there anymore. Like someone reaches in and pulls the desk out and something like that because you're right in his face and it's a relatively wide angle. Uh, I mean, I think that only other camera people and, and maybe a few other people out there are really paying attention to that sort of level of like... I think we've all been spoiled by computer graphics and think that you can just kind of do anything now, but this is all in camera. These are all really well choreographed and orchestrated and there's tons of Steadicam or, or gimbal perhaps uh, through this. Can you talk a little about the creative use of movement with, with the camera and, and what, uh, what you're trying to evoke with that? Well, no gimbal, no Steadicam. Uh, we actually, well, in episode nine, there's Steadicam and there's maybe like two, three shots in the show where we needed to use a Steadicam just because it was, it would have been dumb to do it in another way. David Taysher, who was our Steadicam operator more towards the second part of the show, he came in a little bit later on the show, but he brought like, he's such a great dirty operator that I think he relieved a lot of the stress that Ben and I had in with regards to shooting any Steadicam because we actually don't love Steadicam for how we like to put things together visually. Like we, we avoid it like the plague. And at the beginning of the show, we said no Steadicam. Even the producers were like, you don't want us to book a Steadicam operator just in case. I'm like, nope, we don't <laughs> want Steadicam. We don't want Steadicam. And that was figured out throughout the process of shooting. It's just episode nine was shot later on in the schedule. So when we had David come on board, he was actually a Steadicam op and we, we used him to like fullest potential because of that. But the office stuff really was no steady cam. There's one shot where we did a steady cam thing. So the the hallway, the sequences of of, of tracking with everyone in the, the hallway, it's all dolly. All dolly with remote heads. We when talking about the visuals for the underground world, we really wanted to do surveillance and non-human operated camera. So everything was remote heads. And the specific shot you were talking about was actually a techno dolly. Yeah. Um, we knew we wanted to do, like when we were storyboarding, we knew we wanted to do something that wraps around and, and was really kind of like a serpent-ish kind of shot. So it was an underslung techno dolly that allowed us to put the camera where it needed to be. And yes, someone did wild in the computer. We had like, actually, I think it was like a phone version of the computer because everything was plugged through the set. So you wouldn't actually be able to rip out the computer of how it was set up. And I think we had, I don't know if they had put the real one and we unplugged it, but 
it was a whole process. Like a lot of people were involved in moving that camera around, but we would always stick to those tools more than anything that was human operated. So like a gimbal, which would have been human operated, would have not been an option for us. We tended to work with heavier, bigger equipment to be able to give like the rigidity that we wanted the camera to have. Oh, of course. I mean, and that's how I think it, it's usually done when you have budget and people and time and, and everything else. That's that's the way that the traditional way. One of the other things that that really strike me about the show is your choice of camera height. Camera height, almost maybe nothing I've seen since uh, maybe Mr. Robot or something like that. Has there been such conscious choice about uh, if you're going to be at chest height, at head height, looking down, looking up? Sometimes I feel like, you know, the severed employees, you're down low looking up at them and which traditionally would be like, oh, this is a powerful look, but no, they feel enclosed in this, you know, this office ceiling that's over them. I feel like in the particular, you know, macro data refinement room, whenever there's an opportunity to see the ceiling, you're taking that. You're going to see the ceiling right above. And I know that creates difficulties or maybe opportunities for lighting. But can you talk a little about the use of camera height and how you're changing that? You know, sometimes, you know, shot, reverse shot, scene to scene, it kind of uh, varies a lot. And I, I will tell you, like Patricia Arquette is almost always seen in these like shots of power, these like real power positions. Talk about uh, how you're bringing this all to bear on uh, on the characters in this story. Well, with regards to Patricia, I think there was a lot of things around her that were kind of designed to be a little more elite, you know, even from like her office with her light well. And um, there's a lot of conversations where she's standing, you know, and Mark is sitting and you you have that like weird balance of, of her looking down to him. Uh, and even like her costumes and materials in her office, everything is a bit more, you know, premium. And then in terms of like framing the MDR space, I don't know that we necessarily were trying to say a message by being low or high, or it it was about finding things that felt a little bit security camera design, sometimes a little hidden, a little bit in a corner where you wouldn't usually put a camera, you know, but because the set was so cinematic and well-designed, actually those angles became really, really interesting. Because if you try to do like a super high wide angle in a corner, it's the type shot I hate personally. It just wouldn't look good unless the set wouldn't let you do that. But we used a lot in like in terms of framing and keeping them kind of refers to your question, but we, we severed them a lot with actual like physical things, whether it be like the doorway, seeing half a body, a little part of a face, having their, just their eyes peeking out. We were always kind of, you know, keeping them contained and severed and captured. And that really spoke to like the bigger idea of the show. And yeah, the ceiling, I mean, both directors were obsessed with that ceiling. So it was finding its way in all the shots. And the same thing with the ceiling in the hallways, like they're both very into graph. Aoife and Ben are both very graphic. So that would happen naturally. Uh, there's uh, moments, fun moments, which uh, are, are very subtle effects. Sort of the uh, the Dalian zoom outs that happened inside the, the you know the elevator set when the severed employees are, are transitioning from from one place to another. Can you talk about the design or the thought process for that? And I will tell you that I have a suspicion which uh, anamorphic lenses that that you're using for this because of the telltale focusing methodology. But can you talk a little bit about like how subtle or how strenuous you want that effect to be? Because clearly. It's, it's just enough if you're paying attention, you're really going to see it. Well, unfortunately, it's not anamorphic. It's spherical. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, ooh, ooh, okay. So you've got an ND filter then and you're doing a, an iris pull. I mean, it's a dolly. So a dolly. No, okay. It's good old like, vertigo okay. effect, you know, that was something that was actually decided on really early, early on. Ben was, you know, wondering how are we going to do these transitions? So we decided on 
doing uh, the Zolly just because it was like a way to merge our underground world with our outside world, which is more long lens, traditional studio kind of vibe, which contrasts with the wide, close angles of the any world. So from the start, I was like, okay, it's going to be like impossible with an anamorphic lens. You know, we're going to struggle with minimum focus, getting the camera close enough to the actors. And at that point, I asked my AC, Eric Swanick, okay, I need to pull all the zoom lenses that I can do zollies with. Uh, we're going to test them all. We're going to see what gives us the coolest shape and the most flexibility. I think, I don't even know if we tested anamorphic zoom. I, we had our 50 to 500, but it was, you know, to make the zolly work, you need to play in the wide angle, you know, of it. So you want to be starting around 19 mil. And with the anamorphic one, we couldn't, you know, we just couldn't get in that range where we could get close enough and not have minimum focus issues. It's because if you put a diopter on, then you couldn't get the camera far enough to do the the longer version. Hmm. So we ended up being a 19 to 90 Panavision zoom and um, which is what we use for pretty much all of the Zolly transitions in the show. There are different kinds of transitions. And uh, we use this Moco like homemade device by Anthony Jacques, who's a remote head guy, uh, motion control guy in New York. He had developed this system with a laser. So your dolly pusher, like your, your dolly grip is pushing the camera forward and the lens responds to the distance on the ground. Mm. So it's actually half human and motion control operated. So you can kind of riff and improvise with it. But yeah, we, we tested so many things to make that work. And ultimately it was, that was the device we ended up going with. And then, you know, finding like that, that sweet spot where the morphology in the face changes just enough and trying to make it like not that unflattering because, you know, when you get to 19 million, you're here. That's where the change is cool. But um, not much, like there's no visual effects happening on the face. They did do a little bit of adjusting on the back wall because we didn't want to make it about the back wall. Like originally in my mind, it would be just just the face changing. And you wouldn't notice the rest. But so that's why the elevator is fairly minimalist also. It's a really fun shot. And I look forward to it each time it comes up, actually. So it, it's uh, it's really a nice a nice little bit of business. Now, here, I want to talk about sort of like, you know, the, the broader themes of the show, because ultimately everyone, and I think, you know, having formerly worked in crew myself, the whole idea of work-life balance, <laughs> the whole idea of work-life balance and this show, uh, it plays exactly to the ideas of like, you know, where you spend your time and where, where you're looking forward to. And crew people in particular work so many hours and you have to make absolutely the best of your your work life because your work life will will over dominate your non-work life so much of the time what was the conversation like between you and ben uh, or the screenwriters or anyone else involved in trying to visualize the work-life balance and, and and what you go through with that i think if i talk about it on a visual perspective it was about some of it was about the everyday and the repetitiveness i think we wanted to like and and ben really was something he really emphasize trying to repeat certain things, you know, repeat certain gestures and, and see Mark, you know, going to work, coming in, having a routine. So even some shots we did several times, like there's this one frontal shot of the house that he's always want, always wanted to do with Cobell's in Mark's house. And we come back to it, you know, so it's just that even as a viewer, you're watching something that's pretty mundane and tech, usually it would be like pretty boring to watch, but because the writing's actually really, really smart, the dialogues are really smart and the actors are great and everything is so curated I think the viewer gets like sucked in but like that just goes to show like how how talented the showrunner and Ben are in terms of like making the best out of something that could have been absolutely horrible <laughs> but but you know we did like live that as a crew uh, right. I was gonna say every day you're back in that same place again for for a it long was really time hard 
It's very, very difficult. And it was during COVID. And the only thing that you have as, as crews, you know, is to make it worthwhile, those 16 hours a day that you're doing there is, is each other. And COVID pushed us away from all, from each other. And we really shot it when like, it was the worst. Like when you, when people were coming back from the shutdown, people were afraid and we're getting tested five times a week and eight times and three times a week. And everyone's always stressed out about getting COVID and oh my gosh, and who, you know, putting people at risk. And we're all like confronted to this. Our job puts us at risk. And in the industry, so much is happening right now with regards to unions and work and how we see work and how we treat people in this industry. So it was a tough time to be making a show like this, you know, you're, and when we went outside, like when we were able to actually shoot exteriors, most of it was night exteriors in the winter, you know? So like this depressing environment that Mark is living, which is what Ben wanted. Like we lived, we lived with Mark. Like we lived with these people and day in, day out, we went through it and it was like groundhog day. (laughs) It was tough. The set, this had super low ceilings. But ultimately, I think like we did something that everyone would be really proud of. It's just that it, it really wasn't an easy experience. And I think shooting it made us realize a lot of things as it grew. Uh, where did you guys shoot the, uh, the interiors and the exteriors? It, it looks like the location of, uh, of, of the corporation is, uh, is a real building. It's got like this brutalist architecture. But the way that visual effects are these days, I think, you know, so many things can be fooled. Where, 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 is this a real place? And, and where did you shoot? It's a real place. We found it early on. Uh, it's an Aerosarnan building. I believe it was built late 50s, early 60s. And it was an actual like lab uh, technology development place. Um, there's like videos on YouTube, I think, of it, which are kind of crazy. And it's in New Jersey. And there's actually like all these housing um, right around, like surrounding it. There's all these like cookie cutter plantation style houses. And there was a moment where Ben was thinking about maybe even making Mark's house there. The visuals are crazy. So, but visual effects erase those houses in the end. And we, we ended up going with a much more sparse aesthetic and going with another housing development for Marks just so that it wouldn't be so physically tied. But yeah, it's a real place and it was super inspiring shooting there. I mean, it is what it is. Like, it's insane. It looked cold. I mean, it just looks cold. I mean, I'm sure it was cold, but uh, I don't think that was CG snow. That was, that was real snow. Well, props to Ben for like pushing to shoot every time there's a snowstorm. Uh, (laughs) He's always like on snow alert, trying to make things happen, which can be a nightmare for producers. But, you know, in the end, when you have someone who like pushes that way, like pushes that much, like it really shows in the show. He fought for winter more than anyone, you know, and to have no leaves. But there's just because of COVID, it kind of threw us off a little bit and it was harder to improvise. We didn't, we got some residual snow over there at, at Bell Labs, but Mark's house, we got like an actual snowstorm. We had a lot of snow when we were at Mark's house, but you know, they added snow on the roofs. They added snow in a bunch of places. They brought trucks in. So special effects did a huge snow job on this. Hey, tell me a little bit more about yourself. Do I understand correctly that you're Canadian? I'm French Canadian. French Canadian. Well, with with a name like Gagne, you you might you might assume so, but I didn't want to assume. You know, you and you don't have the, you know the stereotypical you know Montreal accent. So I I figured I would ask. So how long you've been uh, have you been doing this? Your IMDb is very prolific. It looks like you've been shooting for a long time. So tell me a little bit about you know the Jessica Lee story. Where how did you get the bug for this? Well, I'm from Quebec City. So it's really like the most francophone part of Quebec. The reason I don't have the accent is my mom's actually an anglophone. My father's a francophone. Mm-hmm. And it was school in English in Quebec City, which is quite rare. There's only like two prime. Well, when I was young, there was only two primary schools you could study 
English at. My mom put me in English school, but French is my mother tongue. Anyways, that explains the accent. I grew up in the video store world because my dad had video stores. Me too. <laughs> yeah? Like, yeah, of course. Amazing. <laughs> so, you know, like that really influences you. And I worked in the video stores for a long time. I worked for my dad for a long time up until the age of like 18, 19, when I left for, for university in Montreal. And so I did CJEP in, we have this different schooling system in Quebec. And I did this pre-university college called CJEP. I did that in film. And then I went to Concordia in film and I did also photography as well. So I had a major and a minor in photography. And then basically like right after school started working with friends who were studying with me, made a first film of one of my friends in film and her film went to Cannes. And then after that, it was just like, I don't know, one thing after the other, I, I wanted to shoot everything I could, you know, because every movie was an experience for me. And I, I felt like I could really like get better by actually shooting movies. I, I just started shooting features the year after I graduated. Oh, wow. And I didn't spend much time in the commercial or music video world. I really went straight to movies and I learned the hard way, you know, like my mistakes are definitely like there. They'll never go away. You know, when you do like commercials and music videos, people kind of like forget about certain things. But like, I feel like I, even though I'm proud of every single project in its own way, but like you could see the change, you know, like I didn't know how to do anything on the first one, I feel. But I, I prep so much and I do so much research that in the end, whatever's made is something that the director wanted because like we really, with the process, develop something together and they always seem to be happy. And if maybe I'm just a little bit critical of my work. You're, you're in good company. I think that, that a lot of cinematographers go back and they, they, they watch their stuff and they go, oh man, if I had this to do over again or now I would have changed all that. I, I had uh, Seamus McGarvey on the show and I, I'll just give you this quick anecdote and uh, go right back to your interview. But uh, I said to him, I, I really like this, this early movie of yours. And he's like, oh, you like the runt of my litter. <laughs> so... Which, uh, which I think is, and it's in, it's in the interview. And I think that, uh, though it's true that once you apply a certain stamp to something, it's kind of hard to imagine any other way. And I want to just really briefly talk about Mrs. America, just, just because, you know, I got to throw this in here. I was a huge fan of that show as well. It is a TV series that is set as a period piece, but you made the conscious choice not to make it look like a show or a movie from that era. And I loved that. And it, it was it was so nice because anyone who lived that, anyone who was there, that's how they're going to remember it. They don't remember it as like, you know, a, a funky old television show or a movie. You used all of the, uh, the technology to evoke what it was like to be there while the production design and the costumes and everything else makes it, you know, the accurate to the period. Can you talk just a tiny bit about the conscious choice of how you wanted that show to look? Well, I think there still was like a desire for it to have a 70s vibe. I think that's always part of my work like i'm super 70s driven in my references but it wasn't gonna be like the moody pakula thing that we all love from the 70s um the showrunner wanted something quite vibrant and alive you know she didn't want to see it as something she wanted to see these women in like a really positive light so she loved it when we did sunny lighting. She really, like, she would come to she's like, I love how you did the sunny, sunny, <laughs> which is kind of the opposite of what I usually want to do in terms of, you know, mood. I don't want it to be like bright and poppy, but it's what this wanted to be, you know, because it just didn't want to be depressing. Yeah, we went, we went with digital. We shot Sony Venice, uh, anamorphic. We didn't get to do the ratio that we wanted, which kind of made me sad. I still really struggle with that to this day because uh, for me, it's a 
incredibly important to be able to shoot the ratio that you want, but we got blocked. So we weren't able to do that. So I think if people were able to watch that show with like what was actually captured, it would be way better. But yeah, we had to tighten it in. So we still went with anamorphic just because it had the right texture that we wanted. So I can't say that it wasn't trying to look like the 70s. I don't think we were trying to hit the nail on the head. It was what felt right for the colors, the vibrancy of the story. And that richness and contrast and saturation wasn't something that you would find in like 70s movies. I think it really worked. It was really wonderful. So Jessica, we're just about out of time. One last thing, where can people find you if they want to follow you on a, do you have a website or social media or anything like that? I mean, I have a website, but I, I don't think it's an amazing website. I have an Instagram. I rarely, I rarely post and everything I post is quite dark, uh, but uh, <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram. It's just my name. Well, we'll go ahead and put the link for that in the show notes over at camnoir.com. Uh, I wanted to thank you very much for, for being on the show. And I hope that uh, we can have you back where we can chat some more in the future with whatever you do next. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. So that was Jessica Lee Gagne. Thanks so much for being on the show, Jessica. I, I can't wait to have you back uh, in the future. All right. Yeah. And we do bring people back. Oh, my God. We just did an interview just last week that uh, I don't want to say who it was, but way back machine like crazy. Yeah, that's right. One of the earliest uh, people on the show coming back. One of the oldest of the OG. That's right. All right. So, so, Ben, it's that time. What time is that? Time to bust a rhyme. I'm not going to bust a rhyme. I have no rhymes Time to with suck which to a bust. Lime. I that that sounds like it would be sour. <laughs> it's time for the mother joke of the day. Sorry, this is an old Chris Rock routine from Saturday Night oh. Live, but uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I, I vaguely remember that now. So this is Chris Rock themed episode. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, really, though, it's time to pay the bills, and we have to thank our good friends over at Airy. And holy crap, is Airy having a good Oscars? So you know. The 2022 Oscar winners really relied on airy cameras and lenses, and there's hardly a nominee that didn't have either airy cameras or lenses used for their motion picture. And I just want to mention a couple here, like the cameras used on Dune. Airy mm. cameras. Coda. Coda used airy lenses. And then there were several others that used a combination of both airy cameras and lenses. And uh, and even some of the OG cameras from Airy, like the Alexa XT Plus, which is very much an Alexa, but it's no longer made. And Ultra Primes, Airy Ultra Primes, were used for Drive My Car, which was the the international winner mm. for uh, you know the Oscars. But you know, uh, Alexa Mini cameras for King Richard, uh, shot by Robert Ellswood. Nightmare Alley also used Alexa cameras. It's like uh, yeah, Dan Lauston used the Alexa sixty five and Airy Signature Primes. So it's like uh, there's in there's your face, Cook. <laughs> You know, Cook, Cook wasn't entirely, you know, shut out. Cook, uh, you, know, it, uh, you know, Bruno Delbonel for Tragedy of Macbeth used Cook lenses on a Alexa LF. And I just want to say, where did it get them? <laughs> the real tragedy was that they did not use Airy lenses. <laughs> You're right. Had they used Airy lenses, you know, who knows what would have happened? Put them over the top. <laughs> Anyway, if you would like to read all about the different uh, winners and how Aerie was involved, we'll put a link in our show notes about all the 2022 Oscar winners who rely on Aerie's cameras and lenses. It's in the Aerie blog at the Aerie website, and it's worth a good read because you'll get to uh, really hear about all this, you know, all the amazing projects, all the people who are working with Aerie and uh, and for good reason. They make really incredible stuff. And thank you, of course, for your sponsorship. We're uh, we're really glad to have you. 
Listen now, short ends. So, uh, Ilya, it is our time for our uh, patent pending short end segment. What is your pet obsession of this week? Well, you know, we're sponsored by lighting companies and there's a lot, I mean, it is a golden age of lighting out there. And this past week, a couple of different manufacturers, one of which I'll, I will mention in the future, has a new light coming out. It's a 675 watt light that I'm very, very much looking forward to, but that, that is not my obsession this week. This week is actually something called the Nanlite Forza 720B. It is actually an 800, they call it a 720B, but it's actually an 800 watt light. And it's similar to many of the other cob lights as they're calling them, or chip on boards, which a Bowens mount in the front, which is able to use all the same sort of accessories that have been made popular by Aperture and, and some other brands. But the Nanlite Forza 720B, this 800 watt light, is bicolor 2700 to 6500 Kelvin, so it does daylight and tungsten, the two you know, standard flavors plus a little bit extra. And it comes in at about 1850 bucks. And unlike the previous top-end Forza that Nanlite made, which was a 500, it's silent. It doesn't have a loud fan. And we got an, an early preview of it. The, the, the rep from Nanlite stopped by uh, Hot Rod Cameras and turned it on. And holy crap, is that thing bright and powerful and bi-color, relatively affordable and uh, marking something that that's really impressive uh, for Nanlite is that because they had a history of having loud fans, this did not have a loud fan. It was silent. And uh, I think that in the battle of the different manufacturers of lighting companies out there, this one's a real contender. It's really bright and bicolor. They also make a 720 watt, you know, monocolor daylight version. That one's going to be uh, going to get some action, too. But uh, Nanlite, a real, real competitor, not really much bigger, really powerful and impressive size and silent, which is great because, you know, that that is an issue when you're on set. You have to have a, a light and have a fan. It can, you know, interfere with your sound recording. I mean, it seems to me like having a fan in your light is almost a disqualifier for me. A lot of lights have fans in them, but they're generally silent. It, and granted, this is going back probably three years now. It was definitely before the pandemic when the 500 came out. And when you turned it up full power, it was like, yeah, no, you thanks. can hear this fan. So, yeah, that, yeah. that was, you know, it's true, though. Most, you know, really bright lights, they're not going to be that close necessarily to talent. But if you've got a fan that's cooking like that and making noise, that's going to be a disqualifier. But uh, the fact that they've got this new light where they've completely solved that and it's even brighter than the old one. That's pretty impressive. Also, like, I suppose if you're shooting it through a window or something and, you know, like the sound isn't really an issue. Like how many of us have had an 18K in the same room with us while we're shooting? Because it's, you know. And some ballasts, old ballasts would make some buzzing and oh, things for sure. like that too. So it's, uh, you know, it's not like there hasn't been some sound coming out of lights before. But that 500 was definitely uh, was definitely sort of a problem child. And uh, I think th- they were really aware of it. They had a firmware update, which actually cut the fan speed in half, which cut the sound in half it, it, as well. But uh, that only worked up until the light was about half <laughs> half power. As soon as you got to full power, it still kicked back in. And mm. I ran this at full power, put my, my arm in front of the light, and sure enough, I could feel heat. Heat was coming out of that, but there was no sound, which was, gr- which was great. Very really cool. Good. Anyway, so Ben, what's your uh, short end this week? My short end is a movie that's uh, in theaters, but uh, hopefully will be available on VOD or whatever really soon. And it's a new movie called X. It's a horror movie by someone who I I do know. The director, his name's Ty West. I'm not like uh, best best pals with him, but I, I've known him on and off for for a long time actually. He is an amazing horror director. And I would say damn near a wizard. He is the master of of the slow burn, 
which I complain about a lot of people doing. A lot of people make a movie and they say, I like a slow burn because they want to dry out the suspense. But also it often feels like because you could only think of three things to happen in your movie <laughs> instead of five. You know, like um, I, I'm feeling that way more and more often with with TV series that are just dragging. They're dragging oh, out the story. Oh, yeah. Only yeah. Have two things to talk about. And so we're going to spend an hour on one thing. The easiest so. thing, the quickest way to make me roll my eyes is to say, uh, you know, it's a slow burn because it's like and then people will reference movies like The Shining as a slow burn and go back and watch The Shining. That is not a slow burn. No, that is not a slow burn. That, I, that is edge of your seat yeah. from like minute five. Let me it tell is, you. It is, uh, yeah, I'll say it's deliberately paced, but it's never boring is the thing. Now, Ty made a movie in, I want to say 2009 called House of the Devil that I thought was phenomenal. And it was like a, a period piece that took place in the early 80s and looks like it was filmed in the early 80s. He shot it on 16 millimeter and it is a movie that is such a slow burn that it's like so much of it is is the anticipation. And as a film, as a horror movie viewer, I'm like, OK, I can feel the thing coming. Here it comes here. Oh, there it is. It's not there. And, like, <laughs> and, he, and he did it so many times that after a while, my brain just was like, fuck this. I'm not going to, I don't care what, you know, it's going to happen eventually. Like I'm going to stop trying to predict it. Right. Like not fuck this, like in a bad way, but like, I like my, my capacity to second guess this movie kind of went out the door. So X, which is shot by a DP named Elliot rocket and looks uh, just wonderful, by the way, is kind of a similar thing. It's a period piece and it's about uh, some pornographers who are very low rent, low budget pornographers making a porno movie on this farm in Texas, in this barn that they're renting from the farmer and the farmer doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't know that they're doing it. And so it's kind of these two farmers, two old people versus these pornographers. And uh, (laughs) and it's it stars Mia Goth. Mia Goth is is a frigging. Uh, I, I've seen her and stuff before. She's been around. She's she's done a lot of good stuff, uh, but like I feel like she is a revelation in this movie. And I don't even. Well, I guess I will say this. She also plays the old woman, and there's a reason for that, which you can find on IMDb, which is that they're making a prequel to this about that old woman starring her as that character. Now. This movie references stuff like Boogie Nights, obviously the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like it is clearly aware of its DNA in in the world of horror, but it's so uh, so interesting and freaky and different, and is so good at building this kind of freaky sense of dread of what's going to happen. And the antagonists are these two super old, kind of infirm people. And I can't say enough good about this movie. I really loved it. No, it's not for everyone. If you're not a horror fan, uh, you, you should probably not watch it. But I think it's my favorite Ty West film since House of the Devil. And I'm looking forward to the prequel, which is called Pearl. So it's A24. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I know they're known for, for lots of, uh, you know, edgy fare. You know, they, they, they do other sorts of horror movies. And I know that you've got sort of, I'm going to say, an aversion to movies that reference movie making. I know that is something that, that you have to overcome. Yeah, a little and, bit. And would you say that because this is a horror movie, it helped you get over that more? Because, like, I'm not surprised at all that you liked a horror film. No no newsflash there. But the fact that you can also, I mean, granted, it's a, it's a porn movie they're making. But anytime it's there's very 
varied movie, period. It's, it's it's like it's like they're making a movie in like the late seventies. The my, my aversion is when and it happens all the time too, where it's like first time filmmaker gets to finally make their first movie and they make a movie about someone making a movie and it's like I don't care. Go go come you, up with you a never real, need to see that again. Yeah, go never go, go come up with a real storyline and come back to me. And in this case, it's like no, it it doesn't feel like that at all. It really does. It does have a vibe of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but also like movies like Boogie Nights are are amazing. I mean, like they're. I feel like it's separated. I, I would argue though that that's not really about yeah boogie nights i don't think too much of that is actually about the movie making process there's a little bit in there but most of it's really about all the stuff that goes on just just happens to be the fact that there's a movie going on it's not like this movie is about making a movie exactly and the same thing with this and like elliot rocket's uh photography i think is really gorgeous plus just i I think a phenomenal sense of lighting and composition and the way the thing is graded it it just creates a it's it's just a really unique movie i'm glad i got to see it in the theater saw it with my friend yuri lowenthal and uh, we were both terrified of covid and and i was like oh who's going to be here on a tuesday night we wore masks and it was actually pretty packed so oh, wow. yeah, I was happy and sad to see so many people in the theater at the same time as me. Huh. Well, maybe we'll get Elliot Rocket on the show and you can ask him every question to, you know, yeah. your heart's desire about the making of X. Well, and he's shot a bunch of Ty West stuff, but he's also got a uh, pretty, pretty phenomenal uh, filmography outside of he, Ty West films. Yeah, he's been around for a long time. I, I know I've, I've talked to him in the past, so we have a little bit of a connection to him. I'm sure that we could, uh, you know, probably make it happen if well, he's available. I, I would love to talk to Elliot Rocket. I'd love to talk to him about this. And I'm sure he can't say anything about Pearl yet. But if you if you wait through the entire end credit. It's, they have what almost feels like a weird in joke, but it's actually a trailer for Pearl, which is the prequel. All right. Yeah. Cool. That's going to do it for our, our show this week. Uh, where can people find you if they uh, want to reach out? Uh, you can find me at uh, benrockonline.com and I have weird news. No. How weird is weird? Uh, I, I can't I can't say for sure, but I'll say it on the podcast. It looks like I might be getting benrock.com. What? Yeah. Is it from the podcast? Did they hear you talk about it? No, I wish I could say it was that. It was, I complained about it on Twitter and my friend, uh, Jeremy Galise, who you know, who did sound on the Bill Totolo shoot, uh, his wife, Susan, sent me a LinkedIn profile of somebody who's like a marketing person over at the Brunswick Corporation and said, have you thought about reaching out to her? And I was like, uh, I'll reach out to anyone. So I sent her the same letter that I just sent the corporation somewhere else. And she got back to me in like 10 minutes. And, oh. and uh, I don't want to screw it up for myself because it could still fall apart. But they uh, listened to me. They took my case. And and supposedly they intend to transfer ownership to me. So, Woo-hoo. That's yeah. amazing. I did not expect you to say that. That's great. I, I, I didn't either. And like literally yesterday, they asked me for my physical address because I guess they need that to transfer ownership. Awesome. That's really great. So <laughs> congratulations. Uh, so, sir. so potentially look for benrock.com to uh, be the thing I say. But for now, go to benrockonline.com. And, and in the future, you can make Benrock Online redirect to benrock.com. I can. And then. Yeah, that, that'll be awesome. <laughs> uh, no, that'll be that'll be really good. Uh, my 24 year dream of having my name as a URL. How about that? Uh, and I know I, I pitch it every week, but uh, go to Facebook and uh, join the group needs a werewolf and uh, pitch some werewolfy ideas. We, it, it, we're just we're just churning with werewolves over there. I, I really hope that one of your werewolf ideas actually becomes a real thing. I would I, love I to. Really, 
I think I think that'd be pretty amazing if your if your little Facebook group actually spawned one or more actual projects that came from well, Needs a Werewolf. This week I saw uh, Death on the Nile, and then I pitched a uh, a, a werewolf version of it. So I, I feel like <laughs> I, I I mean you know in a sense werewolves within is a whodunit with werewolves. So uh, it, it, it's sort of been done, but you know why not? Anyway, Ilya, <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. We, uh, you know, uh, I'm there most days, most of the time. Uh, if you want to talk about gear, you want to talk about building a studio, we've been doing a lot of those. So, want to buy can, some seamless paper? Seamless paper? You probably have some you'd like to unload now that you're you're. No, no, out. actually, the, the client decided to keep the seamless paper, oh, and right. I and it was really long. I don't have a way to cram that into my Kia Soul, so. <laughs> Anyway, find me over at Hot Red Cameras. Uh, let's thank some people. Who should we thank? Uh, let's start by thanking Ben Katz. I feel like, uh, you know, we really tortured him this week. So thank you, Ben Katz. He makes us sound like uh, like not idiots. I don't think it was that much torture this week. There was a couple of a couple of moments, but I think I think he'll he'll recover. He'll, yeah, exactly. It's not going to traumatize him or anything. Uh, we should also thank Kay Zalatrachi, who uh, created every scrap of music that you've heard on this podcast. You can find him at www.musicbykays.com. Go in there. Uh, tell him you love his music. Uh, hire him to compose music for your next project, whatever it is. I was actually thinking maybe we should get some music for him to kind of like go under this part of the show as we're kind of like going out that, or something. That and the ads. Like when, yeah. we're, when, we're, when we're doing the ads, we should have some ad music like, like Gimlet does. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if you remember last week I said, I'm not going to let this week end without calling Kays. Yeah, I failed. I failed. <laughs> so now I've you got... know what? Crazy thing. Talk to Kays on the phone today. Didn't mention it. Oh, Jesus. All right. Well, now I'm sure he's listening to this and I'm, I'm, I'm really doubly bad. I got to, you know, mm. got to hustle, try to get, get him on the show. Uh, okay. And let's thank Alana Cody, Alana Cody, uh, producer of the show, making sure that we, uh, you know, get all of our, uh, eyes crossed and T's dotted and, uh, and, and lined up three out of five Oscar nominees for us to talk to this year. Yeah, I know. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to say that, you know, to all future guests that look, you've got a really good shot of getting nominated. If you're on the show, you might even win. But but first use airy lenses. <laughs> airy lenses, airy cameras, really good chance. Yeah. That's like yeah, that that that's that, that's yeah. like step one. Step one, shoot a movie with airy cameras and lenses. With airy anything, any yeah, even yeah, follow focuses, whatever. Step two, come on the cinematography podcast. Step three, wait for that sweet sweet nomination. That's how it or, works. Or statue. That's that's really it. For sure. Well, and congrats again to Greg Fraser. Who, uh, whose amazing work continues to blow our minds. Can't wait to see what he does next. And we should get him on the show to talk about The Batman. Uh, absolutely. All right, so that's going to do it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.